This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Kirk Megu, host of New Books in Politics. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes store or any of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Are you an academic who wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on how to use your intellectual authority to do so at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You'll find the link below. And now, on to this week's episode. Hello, my guest today is Christine Fair, author of In Their Own Words, Understanding Lashkar-e-Taiba, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Christine Fair is a Provost Distinguished Associate Professor in the Peace and Security Studies Program within Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She also served as a Senior Political Scientist with the RAND Corporation, a political officer with the UN Assistance Mission to Afghanistan, and as a Senior Research Associate with the United States Institute of Peace. She specializes in political, political and military affairs in South Asia and counterterrorism. She served as a senior fellow at West Point's Combating Terrorism Center, a senior resident fellow at the Institute of Defense Studies and Analysis in New Delhi, and took a Reagan Fiscal Democracy Fellowship. She has authored and co-authored and co-edited several books, including Pakistan's Enduring Challenges, Policing Insurgencies, Cops as Counterinsurgents, Political Islam and Governance in Bangladesh, Treading on Hallowed Ground, Counterinsurgency Operations in Sacred Spaces, The Madrasa Challenge, Militancy and Religious Education in Pakistan, and The Cuisines of the Axis of Evil and Other Irritating States. That's my favorite. (laughs) It sounds great. As a side note, she also gained some notoriety from getting the alt-right leader Richard Spencer banned from her gym, and she has a very colorful Twitter account. Welcome, Christine. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's the first time actually on Polemics and Politics. True. So for these listeners, uh, it would be our first conversation. But it, it was a great pleasure to have you on my own podcast uh, a few months ago. Yeah, so how are you doing in these strange times? 
Well, my husband and I, we're pretty much introverts. So now our life hasn't changed that much because we're kind of homebodies. And um, the nice thing is I, I don't have to invent excuses to dodge dinner party invitations now. So, I mean, we were kind of built for this. Uh, we've got yeah. books. We've got our dogs. That's kind of all we need. Yeah, yeah. And, and your cookbook should come in handy. Well, I do. I cook a lot. I mean, that obviously, I think for all of us that are facing these lockdowns, I mean, that's actually the, the biggest source of my public concern. I, I see these elderly women who are really putting their lives on the line, literally, to check us out at a grocery store. And I, I mean, I, I had difficulty sleeping at night, just wondering if in six months those ladies are still going to be alive. And um, I see people working very diligently to stock grocery store shelves, to see people, you know, treat them rudely, uh, push them aside. And I just, you know, we talk a lot about first responders, people in the government, police and fire persons. But I don't think people really pay attention in the way that we should to the people that are keeping our grocery stores stocked. And the, there's no possibility of social distancing and these are some of our most vulnerable people and i don't know i worry a lot about them yeah definitely i mean right now the whole world is facing i mean including the most advanced countries the most the, the richest and wealthiest countries are are facing these existential crises that um, usually poor countries face and war-torn societies and that's really what your book is is talking about in in pakistan and the uh, so I, I suppose people might have a little bit more sympathy with these kind of life and death situations that are being faced, um, let's say in South Asia, for example. Uh, so your book, uh, Lashkar e Taiba, in their own words, um, understanding the Lashkar e Taiba, um, let's uh, get on to that uh, right away. So okay. for listeners who don't know, um, what is or who are the Lashka Itaiba and why are they important? So I think most people who were not living in India probably didn't know much about this group. Many probably still don't. Uh, but if you happen to be watching TV over Thanksgiving weekend in November 2008, you would have at least become faintly aware that this group had uh, targeted several high-value locations in the Indian mega and port city of Mumbai. And they targeted places that would be of international prominence. The final showdown occurred in the iconic Taj Hotel, where the Lashkar Tayaba terrorists that had survived the different assaults on their other targets coalesced and took basically whoever was in the hotel and who couldn't escape hostage for several days. For much of this attack, we were able to actually hear their handlers barking through their cell phones, set this on fire, go kill someone, go shoot someone. Um, all of those intercepts were, of course, in Punjabi, but if you knew Punjabi, you could hear it. So it, it was for this organization, and I think for terrorist organizations in general, we hadn't really had a group take the whole world 
hostage and have their operations subjected to a, a nearly continuous play-by-play over the course of several days. So that's probably how most people would have come to have learned about this organization. But, and there was a movie last year too, right? Yes. An, so, an English language one, because there was a Hindi one before, yeah. Yeah, Hotel Mumbai. And it, it's actually, I have to say, a very accurate film. I mean, they did take some poetic license. Like they did compress some of the target sites into one site because actually handling all of the different sites would have been quite challenging. But I think they did a really good job of capturing the essence of what was so horrifying about that attack. Mm-hmm. And how, how does this group, uh, again, for you know listeners who might not be uh, totally familiar with the group, how, how does Lashkar-e Taiba compare to Al-Qaeda or ISIS, for example, who are much wider known? So what makes Lashkar different, Lashkar Taiba different from those other groups is that they tend to exclusively focus on South Asia. So they are Pakistan-based, Pakistan trains them, arms them, supports them, gives them every manner of operational assistance. However, their attacks are exclusively in India, including that part of Kashmir, which is administered by India. And after 2004, for complex but debatable reasons within the organization, they also began operating in Afghanistan. So whereas Al-Qaeda was manifestly a global organization with global aspirations, whereas ISIS is a global organization with global aspirations and a desire to rebuild the caliphate or the caliphate, as other people would say, Lushker's goals were much more and are much more regional pertaining specifically to South Asia. And then they also have a domestic political agenda within Pakistan itself. And the best way to describe their domestic agenda, and it might sound kind of funny at first, is that they're actually anti-sectarian. They don't believe in killing Muslims. So whereas ISIS and Al-Qaeda have no problem killing Muslims in countries in which they operate, the Lushkar is in Pakistan is steadfastly opposed to killing anyone who recognizes the supremacy of Allah. Now, outside of India or outside of Pakistan in India, they'll kill Muslims. There's no problem. So uh, they have two missions that they serve uh, with respect to the Pakistani state. One is this domestic political agenda to try to stabilize the state as other terrorist organizations are targeting the state and its citizens. And then outside of Pakistan, they kill at the behest of the state, mostly in India, but also sometimes in Afghanistan. So they are, in terms of capabilities, they are just as capable as al-Qaeda. They are just as savage as the Islamic State, but they, by choice, have limited the parameters of their objectives. Right. Now, in the 2008 Mumbai attacks, uh, they did um, attack a Jewish center uh, Israelis and Americans as well. Uh, was that um, something um, like new ground they were breaking or or what? Yeah, so for this organization, it was very, very new. And it was hotly debated within the organization. They understood, and, and by the way, so I, I don't consider it targeting Jewish. I, I don't consider that target a Jewish target as much as I consider it an Israeli target. And the reason why I make that distinction is that Mumbai 
as I'm sure you know, has long been home to India's ancient Jewish population. There are several functioning synagogues in Mumbai. And not only in Mumbai, but throughout India, you'll find many functioning synagogues. Over time, in recent decades, many of India's Jews have moved to Israel. So this was not a site that you would associate with India's Jewish population. Wherever you go in India and you come across um, this particular institution that was targeted, it really does cater to Israelis. Like if you go to Delhi and Paharganj, is you know it the signs are in Hebrew. So if you don't know Hebrew, you'll have difficulty locating it. So this target wasn't really a Jewish target because they could have targeted India's Jews right. whenever they wanted to. So this was a very specific international. Jewish slash Israeli target. Very now, geopolitical. It, it was very geopolitical. Yeah, well put. I was struggling for the right word. Um, and it, it, it was debated because they knew that when they targeted this center, um, the nature of their profile would change. That the Americans, quite frankly, had tolerated them. The Americans really saw them as India's problem. And when they went after that particular target, the United States began to look at them very, very differently. It was no longer an, a menace for India. It actually became a, a more global menace. And you then did see the United States take action in a way that it hadn't. So the, this, is, <laughs> this is very frustrating to me as an analyst of this organization, right? Because the United States has this very complex relationship that it has to manage with Pakistan, mm -hmm. particularly at this period of time, because we were so heavily involved in the war in Afghanistan. The Americans were wary that if they did a certain, if they took certain punitive steps towards Pakistan, that Pakistan would stop cooperating in allowing the United States to have access to the ground and the airspace. So when I say that the United States took action against Pakistan for this organization, I don't, I don't mean this uh, to be significant action. I simply mean relative to the baseline, which was doing nothing. So yeah. um, we did find mention of them in our legislation. We did find uh, aid to the organization was ostensibly tied to them shutting down these organizations. But we also saw the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, proceed to waive those restrictions on the grounds of national security. So the United States gave the impression of caring. But when it came to the reality that the U.S. needed Pakistan to wage a war in Afghanistan, that Pakistan was, in fact, undermining all along, there wasn't and there isn't a lot of stomach to put serious pressure. What has changed is the there is a, a foreign terror, a foreign uh, financing terrorism task force, FATA, which links progress to Pakistan taking action against these groups to getting World Bank assistance. Now, but here again, we see that no one is willing to call the Pakistani spade a spade. Everyone has fudged. Everyone has said that Pakistan is making progress when in fact it hasn't, because by linking this ranking to World Bank assistance, 
not World Bank, excuse me, IMF assistance, we're basically assuring that Pakistan will never be labeled as the predatory financier of terrorism that it is. Because if Pakistan gets what they call a, a black rating, then it will be immediately cut off from IMF funding. And if it's cut off from IMF funding, everyone worries that Pakistan will implode. So what that has meant is that Pakistan continually gets a gray listing. So you'll see people giving now service to this group, but you don't really see uh, countries and, and multilateral organizations exhibiting the level of concern that they did for Al Qaeda as well as ISIS. Yeah, tell me if I'm if uh, if I have this right. Um, basically, the U.S. is caught in, in a very uh, difficult position for itself because it's been supporting Pakistan, you know, since in the. I guess since independence, but because of the Cold War situation, when India was more aligned with the Soviet Union, so Pakistan became kind of the U.S. proxy in the region. And because of the uh, radical Islam's hostility towards communism, as in Afghanistan and with Osama bin Laden, they were supporting Mujahideen and and other anti-communist forces, just like, I guess, Saudi Arabia with the Wahhabis. And um, But since the end of the the Cold War and um, the rise of Islamic terrorism and and these uh, groups um, really a- attacking other U.S. allies. The U.S. Uh, um, uh, you know has an obligation or, or 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 some sort of interest in stopping that. Yet it it's it's tied historically to funding the state, which and and the state is is operating through these proxy groups. So there's all this complication. Do I have that right? Well, yes and no. I mean, first of all, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship has been more on and off. A lot of people think it was this continuous thing, and it really wasn't. The U.S. doesn't, it's the late 50s when the U.S. connects itself to Pakistan. Pakistan for years, in the initial years after independence, was essentially saying, we've got an army you can rent. And we were not interested because we, the United States was so interested in what it was doing with the Marshall Plan in Europe. And also Pakistan was asking for an extraordinary sums of money without appreciating the enormous capital outlays that were going into the Marshall Plan. So from about 1955-ish, but really from 1959 to 65, the U.S. and Pakistan are allied through a series of instruments. Then in the 65 war uh, that that Pakistan started with India, the U.S. sanctions Pakistan. It also sanctions India, but India is not dependent upon U.S. weapons like Pakistan is. So from 1965 until 1980-ish, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship is actually on kibbutz because of the war in 65. There was a brief period during the 71 war when Nixon, U.S. President Nixon and his national security advisor Kissinger find ways of illegally funneling aid to the Pakistanis to aid their genocide in East Pakistan. But that was illegal and it was very brief. So the relationship, um, in fact, Pakistan comes under sanctions again in April 79 under Carter. And those sanctions were in place when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. It took the election of President Reagan and the 
congressional action to waive those sanctions in 1982 before aid starts going again. So from 82 to 89, we have this relationship really focused upon Afghanistan. Um, there was no direct relationship with Osama. That's sort of like what everyone thinks, that it wasn't the case. And so the, the Mujahideen groups that the U.S. were working with would eventually, um, the fact that Afghanistan became this international crucible for Islamist militants of every stripe, Afghanistan would eventually become the crucible of al-Qaeda. And one could argue that had the U.S. not participated in this as it did, that maybe al-Qaeda would not have come into existence. But I think a lot of people don't know that Pakistan actually began this jihad policy in Afghanistan on its own, without any U.S. anything. In fact, the U.S. was quite opposed to Pakistan in this period. Um, it was in 1974. Under Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, that Pakistan begins a jihad policy. So we go from 89 again to 2001. So the history between U.S. and Pakistan is not continuous. It's broken up by long periods of sanctions. But I, the real problem is that the Americans after 9/11, and I, you know, and I've been part of this process at, at different phases in my career. The U.S. never understood that it could not win in Afghanistan with Pakistan as its partner. It never understood this. It always thought that there were some magical combinations of threats and payouts that could get Pakistan to cooperate. And Pakistan was undermining U.S. interests from the beginning. But if you look at a map at Afghanistan, there was no way of waging that war without a neighboring country with access to the sea because all of the war material mostly comes in through ships. And so your choice was your choice was literally Iran or Pakistan. Now I've long argued that Iran was less dangerous than Pakistan because Iran actually shared our interests in Afghanistan whereas Pakistan didn't. But trying to persuade Americans that Iran is a better partner than Pakistan hard because many Pakistanis promote this idea that we're like the closest of allies and many Americans also believe it because it's a very common it's a common version of history that's not buttressed by fact and can, and can I also mm -hmm. ask you yeah. to comment on this as well in that um, what about the US arms industry I know there are some people who, who say you know Pakistan centrality is because it's a, it's a major market for the arms industry, and that is something that India is a bigger must market. Always be. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, okay. So, I mean, here's the pro here's here's the fundamental problem with the way Americans build clients. We do that like the sine qua non of clientship is selling them stuff, right? And that's always how we've done business, and and, and then. When we sell them stuff, it also comes with a lot of caveats and uh, dual use restrictions and on-site inspections. And in countries like India, when they see all of these caveats, they get really freaked out and they're like, well, this is an invasion of our sovereignty. We're not going to succumb to that. But if you actually look at Pakistan, it basically violates all of those uh, caveats with, with abandon. And the F-16 issue, I think, we, so 
we also use it as a bribe, right? We've used these arms sales to Pakistan as a bribe, thinking that there was some magical combination of F-16s that could make Pakistan feel secure. And if it felt secure, it wouldn't need to use these jihadi assets. It's a profoundly perverse reading of the Pakistani state. And it speaks to what I think are profoundly problematic ways in which the Americans do foreign policy. Americans approach the world with a very unhumble view of their national power. And they think that everything can be bought out. This is their approach to USAID. There's never been a problem that can't be fixed by wasting taxpayers' dollars. Oh, by the way, they've never fixed anything. There can never be a client that can't be persuaded by selling them mid-range versions of F-16s. And so Pakistan was very willing to exploit the way in which the United States does business. Because quite frankly, I think the Pakistanis have a better understanding of how the Americans do business historically than any given American conducting policy with Pakistan at any given time. They think they're reinventing some genius. Pakistan sees a recurring pattern in what we do in a limited repertoire and understands how to exploit it. And Pakistan wins every time, every time it wins. Wow. Yeah. Um, so let's see, you, you, you've talked about your long history with, uh, with United States policy. And I mean, this book, uh, as you speak about in your introduction, uh, I mean, your, uh, it's a long time in the making. It, it goes from your, uh, <laughs> is it your PhD days or from uh, even before that? But uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it, it goes back easily to the 90s. It goes back to um, right, right. when I was a language student. It goes back specifically to 1995. So it's it's been a long. Right. Well, t- tell us a story about. Yeah. So so tell us a story because, yeah, for listeners, um, just to be clear, what, what you're doing here is you're taking uh, the the sort of i don't know the ideological the the recruitment the um the, the vast literature that's produced by lashkar taiba and translating it to english and commenting on it so that we get a better idea of of really their ideology and aims etc correct yeah exactly yeah and and so so um so you say this this wasn't motivated by the 2008 no. um, <laughs> issue it's way before that so yeah so if you can just oh. elaborate on that a bit so yeah, so you know how south, how south asia is and uh and i'm shameless and i i, I it, it, at some point i made peace with the fact that being a woman in this world not just south asia but really anywhere no one takes you seriously and i i learned that pretty early on that sometimes it just it pays to be a stupid girl so, <laughs> so as a student and I still have this poster actually I should take a picture of it and send it to you so I was walking through a narcally bazaar because is is one is want to do back in the day and I stumbled into what was very clearly a bookshop for terrorist publications but I was a literature student. I was studying the Punjabi historical novel. And, and so I was there studying Urdu and Punjabi. And I wasn't, I wasn't at any point thinking about Islamist terrorism. I was um, working on the Khalistan puzzle. And I was interacting with 
the Palestine issue in Pakistan in the 90s, but I was nowhere thinking about these groups. It just was not what I was there to do, but I stumbled upon it in this bookstore and they had this calendar. It was the 1995-96 calendar. That was the year that I was there. And it had all of these global capitals on fire. There was this, you know, very nice elderly gentleman. And I was like, and he was very patiently describing to me that these various capitals represent Satan in some way or another, and they were all going to be set on fire when the Dujal comes back. So now, now, when, when you say um, that this was a, a terrorist literature shop, did, how, how did they self-identify as a religious literature shop, as a political shop, as a or or just a normal book bookstore? And they just this is the um, I don't know <laughs> the <laughs> apocalypse section. I'm no, not no. Sure. Well, it's a totally fair question because back in the day. And again, like, I'm just really privileged that I saw this, right? And I, I mean, I wish I were a little bit older and I could have been a student maybe even eight years earlier because of 1995, things would be changing pretty quickly, right? So I wish I had just a, a, even more time to see this. But back in the day, um, they would characterize themselves as a bookshop for the Mujahideen, right? There was no hiding this. Um, during Ramazan, or excuse me, uh, during Bakr Eid, where they're doing the sacrifices of the animals, Mall Road in Lahore, the traffic, there would be no traffic on Mall Road. All of the different Mujahideen groups were collecting, uh, had stalls to collect pelts. Um, at different, different times, like um, Pakistan Day, uh, they would be out selling posters and cards, like it reminded me when I was a kid, my brother used to collect baseball cards and you'd trade them, collect them all. So they had these like Mujahideen cards that you could purchase, right? <laughs> Do they have, have stats on the back? <laughs> no, no. It, but it would be like, you know, X number of these cards by one Kalashnikov. I still have them in my possession. I still possess them from 1995. Um, so uh, uh, that, and then a couple of years later, um, I would find myself working at the Rand Corporation where I was interacting with people who knew what this stuff was. And every time I went back to Pakistan, I would revisit some of the same stores. I'd check out new stores. And so I had amassed this enormous library I, of this I'm crap. sorry. I, I want to interrupt <laughs> you for a second. You, I, you know, you talked about the, the kind of baseball card thing. And it, I, it just came to my mind. The you know the New York Times expose about Obama's kill list and the baseball cards kind oh, of yes. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually Is I have it, the Al Qaeda baseball cards right here in my desk. I have them. Oh, the same one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, was, was it was that was that just a coincidence or, or are they are these things linked? No, I mean so these things um, that the that these militant organizations had, they were just selling like mementos and and they would have pictures of kalashnikovs of the hilltops of kashmir right. um they weren't really they weren't really um playing cards they, they were bigger than that they right they're like collectible. a martyr like uh, would yeah. people stick up the pictures or i i don't know if yeah. you know exactly yeah? you would for example okay. um people would put them in their car 
Like, you right. know, they would tape them to their windshield or the, the, the window in the back of their car. They would put them in their shops. Back in the day, I mean, when I would go shopping, bopping, as I was want to do, um, they would have Chandan boxes, you know, where you, the donation boxes. And it would have the name, and it would say the Mujahideen Lashkar Tayyaba. <laughs> right, like, right. Straight up clear that these mm-hmm. were Mujahideen. There was no question. So after December. And that would be what? Donation um, yeah. for their families, for the dead martyrs or something? For anything. I mean, it, yeah, for it, anything. Okay. I mean, and the Lashkar Tayyaba had, particularly in those days, a very distinctive kind of artwork. I could, you could recognize it from afar. It had a very distinct palette, distinct, distinct look about it. So wherever I went, whether it was Balochistan, whether it was a so-called Azad Kashmir or wherever, Peshawar, you could recognize it. And I would take photographs of it. And I remember, uh, must have been 2005, um, it was Ambassador Jahangir Karamit. And um, I'd come back from a trip to Pakistan. And Pakistan had just promised the world that the different terrorist groups were no longer going to be collecting pelts for Eid. It actually it was. It was January 2005 because the Asian tsunami had just taken place. And again, mm. being a girl, and you can get away with a lot of stuff, yeah. I, I went to Chaturborji in Lahore, and sure enough, Lashkar Tayaba was there collecting pelts. And I took pictures of them, and I had just had a meeting with their pers- with their spokesperson, Yaya Mujahid. And so a bunch of dudes came running at me, you know, why are you taking pictures? And I said, look, Yaya Mujahid told me, and this is not a lie, it's true. Yaya mm-hmm. Mujahid told me that you're here collecting pelts. And he told me I could come. And so they looked at my pictures. The only thing they wanted to make sure, and I'm not stupid, I didn't take any, I didn't take anyone's faces. All the pictures were from the beard down. Right. And when they saw that there were no faces in the picture, they're like, fine, Dasak, they go. Um, so I came back. And um, I showed the pictures to Ambassador Karamit, and I said, you know, dude, you've just been telling us that this isn't happening. I just came back from hanging out with the Lushers, and it, it's happening. And Don Karamit was just one of those genuinely decent human beings, and he smiled wryly because he's not a good liar. He said, you know, Chris John, one of these days you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> he was a good guy. I miss him a lot. It's, it's bad to be an honest ambassador because like that job yeah. requires lying no matter what country you are you gotta lie mm-hmm. and he sucked at it <laughs> so so you did you start to collect uh that material from the 90s or you that's when you just became aware of it oh i've been collecting that stuff since the 90s i still right. have like oh so the cha-cha g and anarchally mm-hmm. he gave me the calendar i still have it oh have with it. the capital yeah. on fire yeah, I'll send it to you. I'll take a picture of it and email it to you. It's, it's, oh, yeah, that would be glorious. great. Um, <laughs> what, what, what capitals are they? Washington, uh, London, well, it's in my uh, Moscow? Yeah, so so it's in so the thing's in my bedroom and I'm in my office, so, and I can't disconnect from my computer. Right, yeah. But, uh, so the I, so it's all it's all symbols of yeah. international shaitan. So okay. Washington, D.C., uh, I think it's the uh, Washington Monument. Paris is right. there because the, the Eiffel Tower. The mm-hmm. London Bridge is there. Uh, Moscow is there. Yeah. Um, Any Muslim countries? No. Iran? No. No, no. Yeah. Absol- absolutely not. So, okay. so they are not a sectarian organization. 
Right. So, so this was a Lakshay Itaiba yeah. um, calendar. Okay. calendar. Yeah. Right. So you're right. As you said, they are not sectarian. Yeah, yeah exactly. They'll, they'll kill anyone outside of Pakistan, but within Pakistan, they, they keep their nose clean of sectarianism. Right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Even mentioned in the book, interestingly, that although, yeah, you know, um, they condemn Hindus as, you know, the ultimate polytheists and therefore you know, the, you know, most deserving of death, but within, <laughs> uh, but within uh, Pakistan, uh, they have a very compassionate view towards them, unlike other radical, um, you know, Salafist groups. Well, most, so just for clarification, most of the, the organizations that are blowing up stuff in Pakistan are not Salafist. Most, they're all Deobundi. All of them are Deobundi. If, and, and so Dale Bundy's are not Salafis. This, it's a, everyone thinks that only Salafis blow up stuff. No, Dale Bundy's are doing most of the killing within Pakistan. And they are, even though they're not doctrinally Takfiri, where they will declare someone to be a Kafir and then kill them, they are practically Takfiri. And so Lushkar is, within Pakistan, they are opposed to this practice of Takfir. And you actually will find, like, uh, ISIS... And even Al Qaeda uh, ideologues castigating Lashkar Taiba for essentially being like um, the pansy Mujahideen group because they don't do takfir. So, uh, which is also quite, you know, if, if you have a sick and twisted sense of humor, as I do, it's actually quite funny seeing them, you know. And then Lashkar's like, no, 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 we're not a pansy Mujahideen group. We just don't agree with you. But, um, so the reason why they don't support killing Hindus, even though they call them the greatest of polytheists and most deserving of death, is that Lashkar is the handmaiden of the Pakistani state. And as such, they promote no violence within the state. They promote no opposition to whoever is in charge. They'll say no matter how terrible they are, you only have one option, and that is basically to try to encourage them to be better Muslims. So they have no love for Hindus, make no mistake, whether in Pakistan or out. But their approach is quite different within Pakistan. So most of the Hindus in Pakistan are concentrated in Sindh. The Punjab has a lot of Christians. There's also Hindus um, in the Punjab and a little bit of Balochistan, but mostly they're in Sindh. And in Sindh, there's a paucity of government services. There's been an ongoing drought forever. There's no medical services. And many of the Hindus live in um, really desert-like environments. So rather than the state go in and provide services, they let the so-called social service arm of Lushkar, which is the, um, the JUD, Jamaat al-Dawa, and then also the... Um, the insan, oh, I just, I, I can't believe I just completely, just, I have menopause brain. Salah Insaniat Foundation, FIF, go in and they're building two wells. They have 
basically mobile medical clinics. They have mobile eye clinics. And when they fielded their political party, the Millie Muslim League, believe it or not, they had as founding members Sikh and Hindus from Pakistan. And they are very close to the Khalistanis. So I've been very worried about the Kartarpur corridor because the Sikhs that work with JED and the Millie Muslim League are Khalistanis. So I, I fear that the Kartarpur corridor is just going to become a Khalistani corridor, although right now it's a COVID corridor. Right. Right. So now your the, the material that you've been that you've translated uh, in the book and and been analyzing there's a like so are, are these the types of of insights you get from this that you would not get anywhere else for example is is, is this a type of thing that you're revealing the, the sort of complexity the nuance the the differences with with these um other radical islamic groups yeah, I think so. Uh, I think that's been my my comparative advantage. I'm the only person, for example, that's really written at length about the conflict between the Deobundis and Lushkar. I don't think anyone has written about their domestic political role. Now, for for you know many listeners, I, I would imagine the majority of listeners don't know what a Deobandi is, and and probably yeah. maybe not even what a Salafist is. Right? Um, yeah. Could you just explain explain it a bit? Yeah. So, I mean, getting into the nuance of what makes one different from another. So, um, I think the easiest way would be just sort of if you were to to think about, let's take any other faith right? Let's take Christianity, Catholic versus Protestant. They are, they're all, they all consider themselves to be Christian, but they have different relationships to the written text. Um, are they literalist or do we apply the text that was written then in those times? And we try to extrapolate what this text means for today. We have similar movements within Judaism, right? Whether you're reform, whether you're Orthodox or conservatism, they have similar debates about do we apply the text literally or is the text a metaphor for how we should understand our world today? Right. So there's, so there's Islamists like that. Um, so if we were to think about the Middle East and North Africa, for example, most of those countries will follow an interpretive tradition. Cause remember Islam is really about jurisprudence, right? It's about what is the, legal, what is the body of legal proof and reasoning that we will deploy to understand a problem? So most of the Middle East and North Africa are what we would call uh, uh, Hanbali. In contrast, in South Asia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, Bangladesh, they are Hanafi. So within Hanafi, there are different movements. And so Deobund begins in the city of Deobund in India. It's at first a, re- it's a reform movement. It's, it's supposed to be a forward-looking ideology. In India, where Deobund originated, it is still a very pro-state Islamist interpretive tradition. In Pakistan, it has just become different. So almost all of the Deobundi madrasas and ulama 
support things like suicide bombing in India, they will not support them. Almost all of the terrorist groups that people might know of, like the Afghan Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban, Jaish al-Muhammad, the sectarian groups killing Shia, they are all Deobandi. Now, Lashkar Taiba, it's Salafi, and what's interesting about them is that Salafis, in fact, accept no jurisprudence. They accept no school of, of what would be, what we would call fiqh. So they only believe in the Quran and the Hadith. So if it's not in there, they don't buy it. But what what's different in each of these countries, each of these different Islamic interpretive traditions behave differently. So actually Salafis, most people only think of Salafis as the people who blow up stuff. But actually, that's a very crude and inaccurate characterization because there are many Salafis who are, they're called quietists. They may not like what's going on. They may not think people are being good Muslims, but they don't believe in protest and they don't believe in violence and they don't believe in politics. So those people, they just pray for your soul. They're like basically people in the United States after a mass shooting, right? Hopes and prayers. <laughs> That's it. That's all they got in their toolbox. Hopes and prayers. And then you have the, the fighters, the, the organizations which are jihadi, which is that they believe that they can take up a gun and use violence to make people change their behavior. And then there are people who are in between. So the Salafi landscape in India, for example, um, will have a lot of quietness. They may not like the situation. They believe hopes and prayers are the only thing they can do. But overall, Salafis in South Asia are a very, very small number. The vast majority of Muslims in South Asia are going to be Hanafi. And so they're going to be they're going to be adherent to Deobandi. Then there's the Sufis, which are, we'll, we'll call them the Brailvis. That's a, a word that's common in South Asia. So it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated marketplace for faith. And they're all competing, by the way, for converts. Right. Now, whereas, um, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS are looking, you know, um, to establish a, a, a caliphate, a khalifa, um, what, what are the aims of Lashkar-e-Taiba? Because, as you said, it's more within the South Asia. Is it related to the Ghazwai Hind prophecy where, you know, um, they're supposed to take over India or what, what is it that um, their goals are? So okay, the interesting thing about this Ghazwai Hind, or as I like to call it, Ghazwai Boon. Uh, <laughs> I, I know that's naughty. I shouldn't say that. Uh, it's actually, and Hussein Haqqani has a really great article about this in trends in, in, in current Islamic ideology. This is, in many ways, a neologism. The Ghazwai Hind is from a, um, it was from a, a hadith that um, Hamid Ghul, the Pakistani ISI chief who was very much involved in jihadi outfits, he discovered, I, I wish I were joking, but I'm not, he discovers this hadith. It is. It, it, what year are we talking? We're talking, uh, we're talking recent decades. I'd, I'd have to okay. Google it and give you the exact date. But right. Connie talks about this, this magnificent article. But within our lifetime. Oh, dear Lord, within our lifetime. I mean, okay. I, I mean, we're talking 80s at the latest. 
at the earliest, oh, the wow. earliest is the eighties. We're talking like not only in our lifetimes, but, but since I was able to have a, a beer legally, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> very, very recently. So, um, so there's some question so, um, about the legitimacy of the Hadith. Al Qaeda, Indian subcontinent, it only takes us on recently. So when Al Qaeda, India subcontinent launched, what was it in 2016? It talks about this. Um, the Islamic State talks about it, but this is all recent in premature. When I read this Lashkar Tayyaba stuff, they don't talk. I mean, they, they every once in a while you'll see a reference to Ghazwai Hind, but a lot of what they are, what they're really doing, but believe it or not, is telling people to not be Bareilles. They, so remember, I, I, you know, I said these different Islamic traditions, they're competing for converts in the same way that evangelicals are going after people. Some, some faiths are proselytizing and some faiths aren't. Like evangelicals proselytize, Catholics don't. Catholics aren't out there knocking on your door, please come to Catholicism, but but Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, do. Church of the Four Square do. So um, Borealities don't. But other organizations are trying to get you to not be a Borealty. And Lushker is one of them. So the project I'm working on right now is, um, it is a, it's an analytical compilation of translations of selected works that I used in that book in English so that people can access them. And so you'll see um, like in the Shahid biographies, a lot of them will say, you know. And the Shahid are martyrs just so, for people to know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. People who, yes, exactly. People who die in the Ghazwai Hind. Um, right. <laughs> so, um, I, I, so I, just, I don't like to call them martyrs. I, yeah, I, I know. I know. But, um, I, but then what do you call them, right? That's yeah. right. And if, you, if you're going to use English, yeah, it's, it's going to have different overtones. Yeah. yeah so I, so. Yeah, but they call themselves martyrs. That's what they mean by Shahid. But in their last will and testament, a lot of what these guys are saying, Mom, I want you to stop worshiping stones. There's nothing in that amulet. I don't want you to go to these piers anymore. And and so they're they will never use the word Bareilvi, but they'll they'll say things like Pathar Paras, you know, people who worship stones. And a lot of it is just going after these traditional Borelvi practices. And the reason for this is they hate Borelvis. They think that Borelvis are committing the act of polytheism. Like Hindus are the worst polytheists, but they think Borelvis are polytheists too. Because, um, and they have, there's this great line from one of the documents I read. They'll say Christians took one and made three. The um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Borealvis took one and made two, Allah and the Prophet. Because Borealvis have these mystical beliefs about the Prophet, that he didn't have a shadow, that he was made of light. And for Salafis, that is heresy, because the Prophet was a human. Of course he had a shadow. And then there's also a mercantilist aspect to this, because Borealvis... They charge you for everything. So when you're born, when you die, when you have to, right, there's all these rituals. Think about any shrine that you've been to. It's a money-making machine, right? You have to buy the blanket. You have to buy the sweets. It's like a Hindu temple. It's like a gurdwara. It's like a church. It's about minting money. 
Um, and they believe, and so it's also a little bit like the Protestant Reformation, they believe that Braille, these are like Catholic, that there's an intermediary between you and Allah. And they think that's nonsense. There is no intermediary. So why are you paying this intermediary? So a lot of their efforts, believe it or not, it's not just about jihad. It's also about converting Pakistanis to what they call the Asli Din, the true religion, which is not just Islam, but their version of it. So, so they have that that very you know theological pious <clears throat> um, aspect of it. So, so the the Kashmir issue, the the India issue, how how does and and the terrorism and and, and that attack in two thousand and eight, how does that um, fit in to their uh, theology? Is it that you know we have the, the greatest of all polytheists next next to us and. And, you know, and some of them may even have been our ancestors. So we must wipe them out or, or save them or convert them. Or what, what's, what's the thinking in, in the literature that you've been looking at? Oh, that's a great question because it's, it's a fascinating answer. So they recognize that they share this vast history with Hindus. And so when they talk about Hinduism and even Islam in Pakistan, they'll say, look, you know, it's natural. We converted from these people. Early Muslims were slow adapters. Um, but this is why we have all these Hindu practices. And they'll note things like tasbi, you know, the prayer beads, which are this very similar to a Hindu mala. They'll talk about dowry. They'll talk about widows not remarrying. They'll talk about arranged marriage. So they'll talk about all of these things that are from Hinduism that have nothing to do with Islam. And so when they are in India, when they're in Pakistan, they want to get rid of these influences. Hindus are going to be Hindus, but we should not be Hindus. And then we'll focus on Hindus through conversion. In India, no, to be just as a, um, mm -hmm. an aside, in Trinidad, where our population, much of our population comes from uh, India, same thing happens with because we have a lot of those Deobandi missionaries who yes. come here with the Muslims and Talk about de-Hinduizing um, <laughs> Islam here. Exactly. Yeah. No, this is so they share this message with the Salafis, right? Because this is this is what they do. They say all this stuff is basically a Hindu accretion. And I guess it's like um, with the Christians, the Jehovah Witnesses. They don't celebrate birthdays, not Christmas or Easter, because it's Roman pagan, uh, exactly. similar type of thing. Yeah. Well, they say the same thing. Like they 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 vehemently oppose any celebration of the prophet's birthday. They'll say this is just, uh, they'll say this is from Christianity. Like we're just aping Christians because they do that for Jesus, right? In the same way that some Christians will say, oh, that's just aping paganism. But within India, in Kashmir in particular, it's all about killing. There is afforded no nuance. It is the Hindu army, the Hindu butchers, the Hindu savages, the victims are always Muslim and they must be avenged. They also have a lot of, um, a lot of content pertaining to partition that we have to avenge our slain ancestors from partition. So they draw their imagery more than say Al Qaeda, which is a more global imagery about Israelis and Palestinians, about Americans and Muslim lands, Lashkar stuff really draws from South Asia. 
and it's very Punjabi. They have all these Punjabi references. Like um, they'll talk about this one. I, I was last night. I was going through this one biography, and um, this particular Lushkar commander, he himself was Kashmiri, and he was talking about how the Kashmiris loved him because he was Kashmiri. How they always gave him milk when he had a temporary commander replace him who wasn't Kashmiri. He would complain that no one gave him milk. I mean, that's a very Punjabi thing. Yeah, it's a very Hindu thing. Milk, I mean. Milk, it's very, <laughs> no, it's very Hindu Punjabi, isn't it? Yeah, yes, and absolutely. You don't see this. So the irony of this stuff, if you have, a, if you have an eye for the irony, you can find humor in the darkest of material. Um, they'll talk about a fighter who was never known to show anger, but they talked about his savage butchery of Hindus. You know, it, it, this stuff is really, it, it's surreal to read, frankly. It's, you yeah. Spend a lot like of a self party almost sometimes. Well, it is. Sometimes it, it does feel like a Monty Python skit. It really does. Yeah. Uh, except these people are murderers. You know, they're killing yeah. people. They're plotting to kill people as you and I are making fun of them. So, so now, yeah. It, it, well, if, I was going to say, you know, you, you were mentioning, you know, the Kashmir issue too. So, I mean, with the whole CAA issue uh, in India yeah. Yeah. and the repeal of uh, Article 370 with Kashmir, um, well, obviously that happened after you wrote this book. But um, how how does, uh, you know, what you were revealing in the book about their ideology and stuff and, and, and what you may know, about their activities. What, so what has been their activity, especially since those two things have happened in the past year? So A, it's hard to know because they have been yeah. deplatformed from everything so that Pakistan can maintain this kabuki theater facade that it's cracking down. And okay. So, it's so been, Pakistan is officially cracking down on them. Uh, quote unquote. Yeah. So yes, it, yes, yes. Which means it's difficult to find them on Twitter. Um, they, Facebook, Facebook, when Facebook, when it learns that someone is L-E-T-E-J-U-D, they'll take them down. So it, the problem, so when they get deplatformed, they just go underground and it becomes yeah. harder. And, and actually, this organization was always and is about um, printed material, a circulation of DVDs and cassettes and people running around face to face. So COVID you know, might actually have a better toll on them than U.S. counterterrorism efforts because mm-hmm. they really do rely on on face to face meetings more so and, than they do internet. So it's and you mentioned, yeah. And you mentioned in the book too that um, you have a huge network that that spans. I mean, I, I believe like North America yeah. and the Middle East, and I mean, so wherever I suppose South Asians are found yes. uh, in, in migrant communities. They're like all over the place and through their literature. And, and yep. um, so that's where they do their recruitments and stuff. And I guess they're in the bookstores and things. Is that correct? So, I mean, again, it's, it depends on the, it depends on the government. So for many years, the UK was very, very lax. Uh, another group is Jaisha Mohammed. The UK let Masood Azhar come to the UK visit Deobundi communities there and raise money. Yeah. After he was the head of Jamaat, excuse me, Jaisal Mohammed, the United States after 9-11, all of this went underground. And so 
um, I saw it overnight, bookstores that used to collect for different causes um, were no longer visibly collecting. So let, let me ask yeah. you, do you know about Canada? So Canada, so I don't know. I mean, I'm not Canadian. Um, yeah. The biggest problem. Yeah, I, I have Canada, a feeling Canada probably let them run wild in the, in the name of multiculturalism, which is, so, which is what they do very often. Yes. But so, so the, the Pakistanis are not the most notable diasporan group. So mm -hmm. the biggest problem in Canada is actually the Khalistanis. Right. So the reason that you noted, uh, they, you know, these revel in multiculturalism, but also equally important, the Sikh community has been in Canada since the 19th century. They are a very important constituency. And of course, the Minister of Defense is a Khalistani himself. So, yeah. Um, and the NDP leader, perhaps. Yeah, uh, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> so Canada, I follow Canada mostly um, because they are ground zero for a lot of Khalistani music videos, which are mm -hmm. a very attractive recruitment vehicle. And the yeah. ISI has been recruiting Khalistanis in Canada for some time. So I, Lusher, in my interactions with Canadian intelligence groups, Lushker's not, not the thing there. It, it's really the Khalistani. Right. So, so now, um, all right. So, so where do you see, so, so that's interesting. So that at least officially uh, on the surface, the Pakistani state, <laughs> um, you know, maybe um, cracking down on them. Now it's interesting. You mentioned in the book, how you are banned from Pakistan by the ISI. Is that correct? So they, they, um, yes, yes, is the okay. short answer. Uh, right. They threatened me with different kinds of violence. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I'm, I, and if they were to give me a visa, I would be very suspicious. Right. It would be a one-way visa. Yeah, I don't, I mean, yeah. my husband, who has lived through this with me, um, in, in fact, it's funny when the Nazis came after me because I don't think they realize that I'm a hard target. Like, there's nothing a Nazi can do to me that's going to make me think, oh, I'm so afraid. Because when you had, you know, essentially the organization that harbored bin Laden come after you, yeah. there's really nothing anyone else can do to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to give half a rat, half a mingany. So our house was already fortified um, after this ISI episode in 2011. So oh, no. what, what happened in 2011? They threatened me with gang rape by an entire regiment. Wow. Yeah. And, they and, and how did you receive that threat? It was a letter? It was oh, email, uh, email. They, email. They email. don't, um, when you're threatened by the ISI, the objective is not to have you question whether or not it can yeah. ISI. And I had, because Santa Connie was the ambassador, I had a multiple entry visa. I still went because I wasn't going to be bullied by them and I was not gang raped. And so I did make two or three more trips to Pakistan on a valid visa after that event. They've never given me a visa since August 2013. And I have applied. Um, now, I, I don't bother now because now it's expensive and I know from... You know, I'm still in contact with people who were who were in the Pakistan army of some significant rank and consequence, and they tell me to not bother. There's no way I'm going to do that. 
but who knows? Um, government officials, U.S. government officials told me that they're, the Pakistanis are considering. Because, you know, the thing is, I, I'm an equal opportunity asshole. I don't, yeah. I'm not in anyone's pocket. So mm-hmm. when, when India is, you know, what's happening in India right now is also very dismaying before COVID, right? Um, right. And I'm, and I don't mean Article 370. I just mean the the rising communalism and the the abandoning of economic goals for more communal goals uh, that the BJP is pursuing. It, 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 it's pursuing a very different agenda than it did in its first term. So, because pe- people in the in the BJP have been saying that much of the anti-CAA riots that were occurring all over the country and because of COVID now is being yeah. shut down, yeah. um, that it was, you know, being um, encouraged by uh, Pakistani um, Pakistani elements. So I, I don't know if Lakshari Taiba is no. part I mean, of that or anything. No, no. I mean, okay. so look, India is a huge place. And yeah. people forget that just because the BJP is in power, only about 30% of voters elected the BJP. Yeah. Um, because of the first past the post system, there are a lot of parties. And so this idea that it, it had this huge mandate, when you actually look at what's the percentage of people who voted, it's not true that they had a sweeping mandate. It, it, when you look at, when you break down the votes by the people who voted, it's still a minority. It's just the, the same situation in the U.S. It, Trump wasn't voted by a majority of Americans. He was voted by a majority of, of the Electoral College. Right. The majority voted for Clinton. So you will have in India um, a very large number of people right. who oppose this government. You'll have a large number of people who oppose any government. And India, um, it's, when you have an enormous population, large crowds is not something that's hard to produce. Yeah. Right? You yeah. have large crowds um, assembling over the price of onions. Exactly. I, I remember the first time I went to India and I, I stepped out of the airport. There's this huge crowd and they're all holding up signs. Oh, wow, what a protest. No, that's just normal. They're just trying to find, <laughs> exactly. you know, they're they're just to- trying to find their family to come to the car and whatever. Yeah, right. Well, exactly <laughs> yeah, just right. massive crowds everywhere. <laughs> but I mean, I think what makes, and, and by the way, it's BJP is not the first to do this. Um, the Congress party and its goons um, were, were essentially coordinating the mass slaughter of six in 1984 in Delhi after mm. the assassination of Indira Gandhi. But these yeah. things usually involve the police. And, yeah. and it goes to show how much politics influenced the malbehavior of police. Because the police that are currently, or that were Lati charging and helping Hindu writers beat Muslims, their supervisors would have been in their jobs during the 1984 riots. What their supervisors would have learned was you do what the politicians want you to do. Not Mm. So that's just how it works. I mean, in the the Mumbai riots after Ayodhya, the police were involved because these things are not spontaneous. Um, So that's, so, so, so in terms of, of the yeah. Article 370, then with the Kashmir um, uh, issue that uh, the special status has been revoked, 
has has that sort of inflamed luxury type? I'm, I I guess I'm I'm yeah. trying to um, figure out you know where it, it, is the group actually dying out now now that it's you know the Pakistani state is oh, disowning no. it at least publicly. No 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 no, no. Know, or, yeah. So so this so so I didn't mean to dodge the question, but it's complicated. Yeah. So what Pakistan does, right? It has like a petting zoo of terrorist organizations that it can use. And so if you look at what Pakistan does, when it gets under heat for using Lushkar Taiba, Lushkar will go into domestic operations. So Lushkar will be funneled into relief work in Jamaatul I guarantee you it's going to be doing work in COVID. I guarantee you it. And then... And that's well, like what, charity work or something? Yeah. Because it, yeah. it has a huge charity. It, it's, like, it's like Hezbollah in that regard, right? Accepted. It's like the RSS in some ways, too. Yep. The RSS the, does a lot of charity work. The Tunnel Tigers. I mean, this is a classic model for terrorist organizations is they do this charity work. And, and, and the charity work is great because right, what it allows you to do is that you retain your people on your books, but you ha- keep them busy doing something else. And Jamaat al-Dawah, I mean, it's not just about jihad. It's about dawah and jihad. Mm-hmm. And the whole yeah. principle of dawah is getting these pagan frailties to stop worshiping shrines. And right. one way of doing that is the same thing that they do to convert Hindus, right? Is to provide social service, to, pro- to provide a good model for what a good Muslim looks like. So it's deeply ironic. But yeah. so the face, what I anticipate, the face of terrorism in India for a while is going to be Jaish Muhammad. And the reason right. for that is is what's actually happening in Afghanistan. So now that Pakistan has essentially won in Afghanistan, the resurgence of the Deobandi groups is upon us. And so, um, and of course, Daesh, the Afghan Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban, these, having these Deobandi groups regain their brand name equity is going to be part of consolidating the Taliban victory that Pakistan has orchestrated in Afghanistan. So I expect that the next major attacks, and it will probably be done under the name of uh, 370, um, will be done probably by Jaish. Right. And they they did the the last one as well, correct? Yeah, they did. Um, So so Jaish and Lushkar, they're very different organizations. They do different kinds of things. Actually, Jaish is more horrible than Lushkar. Yeah. They do suicide bombings. Uh, Lushkar doesn't do suicide bombings. Right. Which is a distinction that some people don't appreciate. So, um, the, the, you know, one thing that struck me in the, in the movies that I saw, mm-hmm. um, I, I didn't see hotel Mumbai, but I, I saw some of the uh, Hindi movie and, um, like the cocaine they do before, um, it looked like it was cocaine and stuff. Did you, do they do? Uh, I mean, is that sort of part of the uh, the official? Um, uh, I don't know preparation or or are no. those um, predilections of individual um, no and members I, and I don't so I don't even know if it's true to be completely yeah, yeah. honest. I I don't know if it was just a movie <laughs> thing or what. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a nice, oh, what we call info op, right? That mm-hmm. these guys do drugs, that 
like the 9-11 hijackers, it was a common lore that um, they were out with uh, strippers and hookers the night before the attack. And maybe they were, but um, does that, what does that mean? Now in Mm -hmm. the Lushker attack, um, a lot of effort was made to make it look as if these guys were drugged up. But I, I don't think that's true. And the reason is narcotics are not a stimulant. Narcotics actually are a depressant. Mm. So I, and, and the kind of focus that it took to do what they did in Mumbai, to me, would mitigate against the narcotics hypothesis. I think what okay. people are trying to find is a story that, Makes sense. How could a bunch of kids, work kids, hop on a boat, come across the Arabian Sea, go into a bunch of popular places and just shoot people? And I think if, if, if it helps people to think that they were narked up, so be it. But I actually right. don't think they were narked up because um, eventually yeah. they will crash. Yeah. And that. They were sustaining this for four days. I I don't find that plausible. Yeah, and I guess people, especially secular people, might not understand the type of high a religious jihad gives you, which is... um, Let me put it a different way, right? Because I don't even think it's religion. The example I give, there are two examples. Actually, there's three examples. Um, When... American troops were storming Normandy. It was apparent to wave two, after wave one was slaughtered, that chances are you're going to be slaughtered. But they still got out of those boats and they still were slaughtered. Right? We had strategic air command, which was in the 50s and the 60s when we were a new nuclear weapon power. We didn't have aero refueling. So all of our strategic air command B-52s knew it was a one-way mission. They weren't going to drop their bomb and get home. They were essentially suicide bombers. As recently as 9-11, and it's hard for me to tell the story without, without getting weepy, um, when that fourth airplane went missing, um, the air guard was ordered to scramble the F-16s here in the D.C. area. Those F-16s had no coordinates. They had no bombs. They were the bombs. And the pilots of those F-16s had given interviews. I read an interview with one of them. And they said, our job was to fly into that plane. Right? So militaries teach people to do this. Like my little brothers joined at 16. They weren't killers when they joined. The Army taught them to be killers. So I try to get people to not think about this as praise religious people. This is about training. This is about training and, and teaching people to do really terrible things under stress, which is also why I don't think the narcotic story holds up. So that goes against training. Um, you know, they tell, actually, this is a fact. Um, they tell people that you should take a test in the same state 
in which you prepared for it. So if you were sleep deprived when you were studying for a test, you should be sleep deprived when you take it because it allows your brain to access that training when you need it, right? And again, unless you're training under drugs, how would yeah. taking drugs help you be more efficacious as a fighter? I don't, yeah. I don't buy it, basically. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, well, let's see. At the the if I don't know if there's a message in your book, but but certainly I suppose there might be lessons and and things to understand. What what would you say? You know the the main things you want the readers to take out of your book to learn from what you've been translating. Oh well, yeah, we didn't even talk about this. I mean, I think the most interesting thing that came out of this, and I've been observing it actually going back to 2004, and no one believed me when I first began talking about this because I don't know why, but mothers matter. Mothers matter a lot. And um, I was surprised that people were surprised by this. Going back to a regular military analogy, my brothers are army recruiters. Um, One is now out of the army as of last Friday, but as of last Friday, they were both recruiters. And they'll tell you that they spend most of their time recruiting the mother. We recruit our young men and women at 16, right? They can't deploy, and we need both of their parents' signature if they're under 18. Father will typically sign. Father doesn't care. But mom has to be convinced. Lushker does the same thing. They won't deploy a fighter, but they prefer to not deploy a fighter until the mother has blessed the mission because they don't want to make the mother mad. Because if the mother is mad, she will spoil the recruiting pool of other mothers. <laughs> they spend a lot of time recruiting moms. The biographies spend a lot of time telling women what a proper mother does. And when the son dies, the mothers are given a lot of status. The mother of a Shahid has enormous social status. And the mothers will even say to their sons, I don't want you to come back a Ghazi, which is to say a veteran. I want you to be a Shahid because I want to have the status of the mother of a Shahid. This is really, you can't imagine, like in the U.S. context, has any mother ever said to her son or daughter, I don't want you to come back alive because I want to be a gold star mother. No one ever. And the so they focus a lot on mothers, but also the, the family structure in general. And so what I took away from this is that uh, a lot of the traditional, what they'll call countering violent extremist work, focuses on the men of military ages and their decisions. And they don't think about the family structure. And women are relegated to a role of no consideration. And what I realized working through this Lushker stuff now going back many, many years is that mothers are much more important than the terrorism studies crowd have traditionally afforded them. So that's interesting because um, because now you sort of uh, bring it to a kind of policy area. And I know you've been involved in many, many policy debates and, and whatnot. And I, I remember even a, a famous exchange you had with... Uh, what uh, I, I'm trying to remember... The guy's name uh, from the Intercept about drone. Oh, Glenn Greenwald. Oh, yeah, Glenn Greenwald. Oh, right. Lord, that makes him more. Wow. <laughs> and um, uh, 
Yeah. So, I mean, so what, from your, um, from your analysis there, I mean, that, that's a very interesting, um, uh, you know, policy implication about, about um, handling uh, Lashkar-e Taiba. So, so what do you think about, you know, what should the U.S. be doing or India or perhaps the government of Pakistan, if, if, if they're worth engaging on the matter? So, I mean, so that's ultimately tough because if this is not an organization that exists on its own. It's a proxy, right? It, 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 it serves at the pleasure of the Pakistani state. And so this means that the Pakistani state isn't going to do anything different because it is, uh, it's an asset that gives it a lot of killing power at a fraction of the cost of regular infantry. Like basically, these guys are the equivalent of a, of a team of special operators, and they cost not even a fraction. It is an infinitesimal cost compared to what it takes to, to, to maintain a team of special operators, right? Training is minimal. There's no retirement benefits, and they don't have to support families. Like so much of the budgets of India, Pakistan, go to personnel costs. So there are no personnel costs. I mean, they, they're just, it's a rounding error. So that then leaves, so, and the Pakistanis are never going to allow any kind of meaningful countering violent extremism to go in and get mothers to stop sending their kids to blow up stuff. That's never going to happen. Uh, we've tried, but the, the Pakistanis are much more clever than we are. And they have to be our partners. You can't do that stuff surreptitiously. So in the book, when it comes to this organization, because of this organization's structure, which is very hierarchical and pyramidal, and it's very unsecured, I think the only thing that is, that is meaningful is leadership decapitation. And that is a pretty ballsy move. Um, India does not have the ability to conduct these kinds of assassinations yet. Um, and the United States won't um, because it, it is afraid of Pakistan melting down. And if you were to conduct leadership decapitation in the way in which I described, the organization would be most certainly rendered inefficacious. But if the Pakistanis wanted to recreate that capacity, they would. It's just a question of time. So the best you can do when, it, when you're dealing with Pakistan, if you are unable or unwilling to bring major coercive powers to the state, to make the state truly pay for its policies, and I'm going to argue most won't, um, I don't even think India will, you, the best you can do is mow grass, which is kill these guys before they kill you. And there's, there's, there is no nice set of recommendations. It just isn't because if it were so easy to do, it would have been done. The things that need to be done to this organization are very politically risky. And your average policymaker, no, I don't care where that policymaker is. They are not risk acceptant. They are risk averse. So if someone says you kill this guy and all hell is going to break loose, they are going to be more inclined to see the downsides of killing him than they are to see the upsides. And especially since the upsides will be hard to measure because the upsides will be measured in, we don't see a terrorist attack. How do you prove that this was in fact efficacious? 
I could have said, well, we hadn't seen a terror attack anyway. So how do we know this is a trivial with killing this guy? So it, and that's kind of the story of why this group has been allowed to thrive is because people are too afraid of Pakistan and the consequences of significant action. So in a sense, it's a kind of a, a bleak situation. It's bleak, uh, yeah. Indians yeah. are going to die. I mean, it's just a fact. More Indians are going to die. But if I may, I mean, but let's also put this into a perspective. More people are going to die from corona than from Lashkar Taiba. Every day on India's streets, it's a massacre from road accidents. Every year, more people die from road accidents than die from all of India's wars with Pakistan combined, right? So, you, so if you're a policymaker, it's a reasonable question to ask, is this really an issue when I lose more people per day in car accidents than I lose per year in Lushkar attacks? Especially when most of those people dying are security personnel. Oh, I didn't realize that stat. Yeah, okay. right. So like CR, they, they, they go after CRPF, which is the Central Reserve Police Force. They go after Army personnel. So it's if you're a policymaker, there are things that are more deadly by orders of magnitude. And so it's easy to it's easy to kick this one down the road because it's not the most prescient and pressing source of demise in, in our countries. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, wow, that's uh, that's a, a sobering thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but but it's true. I mean, those are just the numbers, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we we've been. I've taken up a, a lot of your time oh. here. Let um, let me uh, just ask you, uh, what projects are you working on now? You you mentioned one that is uh, related to this, right? Where you're um, yeah. just. Remind us of it again. So it's the book I'm working on now, which is like a, uh, it's like a annotated translation of selected works by Lushker. Then I have a, um, I'm always working on survey work. So I've got an interesting paper in Bangladesh that shows the impact of Friday prayer upon support for violence. And then I've got some data I'm doing on Kashmir, on Kashmir stone pelting, hmm. which is um, kind of fun to, to to work with. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, so there's great. Always, there's always something going on. Yeah, I yeah. I don't have kids, and plus it's COVID. We can't do anything except work. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so we'll be expecting to see some more from you from this year. I suppose some of it will be out. Inshallah. No, no. It, I mean. It takes a while, and of course, everyone, every everything is slowed down because not not everyone is going to work, right? Um, I mean, you, you guys are going to be experiencing this shortly. Um, some people are going to work as normal, some people aren't, and, and I make light of it. But the fact is, um, there's a lot of household management that you have to do with this disease. You have to make sure that you've got cleaning supplies, which when everyone's hoarding is difficult. Grocery shopping, it used to just be I would go to the store for half an hour, I'd get what I would need. With run-on grocery stores, I have to go to multiple stores. What used to be a half an hour affair is now a half a day affair. So everything that you took for granted, um, like just being able to get fresh tomatoes, is gone. 
and, and you can't just, and then of course that means that canned tomatoes are gone. Um, I tried to outsmart the hoarders by going to Daisy grocery stores. And that actually has been a good strategy. I, we've got all of the dal that we could possibly eat between now <laughs> and in, in July <laughs> when our life might become less COVID dominated, hopefully. Yes, hopefully. I, I, I do hope that I, I do hope that it uh, that this goes by then. But thank you so much for this uh, very, yeah, no, it, I mean, a very enlightening and informative uh, interview. As, as always, you're a wealth of uh, information and insight. It's been a real pleasure. Okay, you be safe with COVID. Make sure you've got your cleaning supplies, wash your hands and get your fresh vegetables all, all, uh, all lined up. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. All right, have a great Take day. Take care. Bye-bye. That's all for New Books and Politics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, if you are an academic that wants to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week.